so many things I want to say right now. One, I grew up in an acapella tradition. So like your problem that you had last week, that's that was never a problem for me. <laughs> like somebody you just start a song and then like use, matter of fact, we prefer that than anything else. Um, so, I mean, if there's ever, you know, an impulse to say like, maybe we should have an acapella service, like Twan can come and lead you to acapella. So, um, <laughs> That's, that's one of the great things. So coming here, you know, like most churches, we uh, at Ecclesia teach in kind of series and so kind of standalone um, um, content seems like really odd if you don't have a context for it. So I thought today we would just share a little bit about the, the uh, my brain just died. The lectionary, the lectionary text today. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we're going to spend some time in the lectionary today. So the great thing about the lectionary is that um, as we open the scriptures together, there are Christians all around the world who are hearing this same text today and um, inhabiting it in unique ways in their community, um, in their cities, in their state, in their countries. But we're all hearing the same text, which I'm one of these people who's just kind of old enough and romantic enough to really love this idea that the church is one and that some of those expressions are really large gathering expressions and some are small, um, maybe just two or three families. Uh, at the beginning, Rob was joking about like the smallest like second service that y'all have ever like had. Like, I have actually shown up places um, to, to teach and had three people there before. So um, it's all about who the church is like I have had there have been months in my life where I have been around the table with the scriptures with seven people and on a, on a stage in front of 7,000 people. And what is so beautiful about that to me is that uh, the scriptures keep calling us back to this idea that God's people are one people, and that we are brothers and sisters united through the blood of Jesus. And that I think we should take that more seriously. Um, and our call to the world, um, because not a lot of people do. So this last week, I've been reflecting a good bit on um, the death of George Floyd. This is one year since the murder of George Floyd. And that's not me saying that it was murder. That was codified in a jury, that that was, in fact, murder. And what was fascinating to me last summer is that we were kind of right at the beginning of COVID and so many of us were at home ex for extended periods of time where we hadn't really been before. And so a lot of us got to see things that normally might just slide off of our screen because we're just so busy. And so we watched that nine minute video. As a matter of fact, I'm probably one of the few people who have not sat and watched all the way through the nine minute video. Um, it's one of those kind of things. Like I, I just didn't need to see it. And so in the aftermath of all of that, we have all of these um, protests erupting, not just here in the United States in big cities, but in small cities. There are friends of mine who were out protesting in places like Abilene, where I went to school, which is a remote, small city, places like Belton, but also around the world, as they were saying that there is a problem when the power of the state right, can be leveraged over against minorities in the state. That's not, a that's not a uniquely American phenomenon. 
Matter of fact, my wife's best friend is, um, she's half Chinese, and her and her husband, her husband grew up in East Texas and is very East Texas. But for a long time, they were missionaries in the Philippines. And so he's come back to the States and worked for organizations like Compassion International and the Chalmers Institute, these large Christian um, organizations. And he was telling me in the aftermath of those, like this happens all over the world. Um, it's not just here in America. But my experience was that in the aftermath of George Floyd, I started getting lots of calls and emails and texts from people that I'd gone maybe to high school or college with or knew early in my adulthood, and largely uh, from my white friends. And the things that they were saying to me um, were, I'm sorry. And they were checking to see that, that I was okay. And in one sense, clearly, I am okay, I'm, nothing happened to me. But what I heard over and over again in their expressions to me is like, I remember when you told me about, or you said, or I heard you at this place and you told this story, and I didn't believe you. And I want to apologize for not believing you. And George Floyd is extreme in that it did result in his death, but it's not extreme. And the fundamental, basic, everyday, unequal treatment uh, that people of color and women and other minorities experience all the time. As a matter of fact, it was just a few months before that, back in February of 2020, when my alarm at my house, my house alarm went off at 2.30 a.m. And I was out cold, like I was completely asleep. I didn't hear the alarm go off. Um, no one, I think, heard the alarm go off. We were, we were all out. And not only did I not hear my alarm go off, I didn't hear my phone ring either, which is next to me on the nightstand. And my phone was my monitoring company for my house alarm calling to let me know that the alarm was going off. And you guys have these systems in your homes, you know that they call, and if everything's okay, you give them the password, and everything's fine, you turn off the alarm. But if you don't answer the phone, um, or you don't give the right password, um, or in lots of houses, if you go to the keypad and you enter the password backwards, I don't know, a lot of people know that if you enter it backwards, that sends the police to your house. Well, I answered the phone on the last ring, and they already hung up. Well, I didn't want all the hassle of all that, so I called back as quickly as I could, but I couldn't get anyone on the phone, so I know what was going to happen. Like, in a few minutes, the police are going to show up at the house, but I didn't know how they were going to show up at the house. And so it wasn't too much longer than that that I see um, this flashlight just sort of waving around in our backyard. So my assumption now is that it's the police. And so I kind of go to the back door, but it's a little bit sketchy because if I um, open the door or raise the blinds or anything like that, that's pretty quick motion, and I want him to make sure that everything's okay. And so I just kind of wait, and he comes around to the front. And at our house, there's a side light by the door, so we can see out and people can see in. So he's standing out in front of our front door. And so I turn, off, I turn on all the lights downstairs so that he can see me standing there and all the light. I have my cell phone in my hand. And so I kind of wave my cell phone and I set it down on the table that's in our living room. So you can see me set it down and I walk over to the door. 
and I opened the door. And he asked me um, if I'm the homeowner. Well, I didn't imagine that a lot of people, a lot of crooks, break into people's house wearing San Antonio Spurs pajamas, but I guess it could happen. And I said, I am, and he asked to see my ID, and I told him exactly where it was in the house, and I was going to go get it. And so I go, and I get my ID, and I bring it to him and show it to him. And by this time, my wife, Rochelle, is awake, and she is standing about nine feet behind me in the living room, her two, in pajamas, not San Antonio Spurs. I don't understand why. <laughs> and he looks past me, like over my shoulder at Rochelle, and he says, ma'am, are you okay? And she goes, yes. And he looks at my ID, and he looks at me and asks, sir, do you have any warrants out for you? I'm like, whoa, <laughs> hold on. Because like, this is my house. And like, the address you were sent to matches the address on the ID. And my face matches the face that's on that ID. Like, you have proven everything that you could prove. Like, I've shown you that it's my house. And then he looks past me again at Rochelle and says to her, um, ma'am, you can go back to bed. And I'm thinking, why can't she go back to bed? She's proven nothing. How do you know she's not robbing me? And so he takes a couple steps back and uses that little thing that's on their uniform. And he calls in to see if I have any warrants out for me as I'm standing in my own home, which I have proven to him is my home. He steps back up, hands me my ID, and says, sir, do you know that you have to register your alarm in the city? Well, it turns out that that's actually true, but I had never in my life heard that you have to register your alarm. So if you haven't registered your alarm, tomorrow morning, go take care of that. And then he says, did you know that I could give you a citation for not having registered your alarm? So you're here at my house that I have proven to you is my house and you're asking me if I have warrants out for my arrest and then you're threatening me with a citation. Well, this is when it's a good time to know stuff. I have a good friend, his name's Drew. He started this ministry that's in Houston called Restoring Justice. He's an attorney. And so Drew's told me, we've coached the girls. Are you ever in a situation like that? It doesn't feel comfortable to you. No one's got to be right. No one's got to be wrong. Your question to law enforcement is, am I being detained? And if the answer is no, you have two options. The next question is, um, am I free to leave? Then, I, then, then am I free to leave? Or if you're on your property, then you can tell the police you're free to go. 
And so I said, am I being detained? And he said, no. I said, well, you're fr we're, we're good. You're free to go. And so this is one of those things that when it happens to you at 2.30 in the morning, it's kind of unsettling. You don't like just go back to bed. So I do what we all do when we have deep, spiritual, philosophical, meaningful questions in the 21st century. I got on Facebook and I kind of told this whole story and I just asked, is this standard operating procedure? Because I've got plenty of people in my church who are in law enforcement. My cousin is a DEA agent. My other cousin works for the federal marshals. We got people all in law enforcement. Rochelle's cousin is a Houston police officer. Like we have plenty of people. And I just want to know, like, is this, is this standard? And no one, no one said that it was. As a matter of fact, I mean, there are a lot of people who are kind of ready to go to war with the local police on my behalf. And there are a few people who said things like, well, I got pulled over and police officer asked me all of these questions. And I was like, that's true. And I get that. But like, that's actually a crime. Like you get pulled over because you were doing 90 and a 55. Like it may be common, but it's still a crime. I hadn't done anything. And no one told me that that was normal. And so just the next day, it was Sunday and I was teaching our downtown campus. And so there are, you know, several hundred people who come through there on the weekend and one after another who had read about the story or heard about friend, they always were asking me, you know, if I was okay. And I found myself saying to them over and over again the same thing, which actually surprised me, which is when you're from where I'm from and you look like I look, this is what you come to expect. And I think the sad reality of our time, times that we live in, is that all of us, whether we admit it or not, have come to expect the world to treat us a certain way, to expect certain things from the world, not based on who we are, but based on what we are. Like white or black or male, female, native, immigrant, rich, poor, gay, straight, Somewhere along the line, the world decided that it would be easier to know us if they could just label us. And we all lived with the overflow of that kind of sloppy thinking. And maybe even more sad than that is that a lot of us have decided that we've just come to expect the world to receive us that way because of what we are. White, black, male, female, native, immigrant rich or poor, gay or straight, and the truth is, some of us like it that way. But when you flip open the New Testament, the majority of the stories in the New Testament are about the same thing. It's in every letter of the Apostle Paul that there's a fundamental argument going on in the church, and it's between these two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, and the question is, how are these people going to come together 
in unity under the banner of Jesus. Like that is the fundamental issue. The biggest issue in the church is the church. How do people who are very different from one another learn to be together? How do we become the kinds of people who know the difference between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't make a difference? This is the driving force in the New Testament. And one of those stories about that is tucked away in John 3. And it's a story that you have heard so many times that you hadn't forgotten you've heard it. But we may have forgotten what it meant. And it's about a man named Nicodemus. And this is how the Apostle John, the last eyewitness, the last living eyewitness to Jesus, this is how he tells that story starting in John 1. John says, now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. So this starts out not weird at all. Like people come see Jesus all the time. People come to see Jesus teach. They come to see him heal. Some come to see miracles. Some come to be healed. That's not strange at all. What is a little bit strange is that there's a lot of detail in just a couple of verses. Not, not only is Nicodemus named and not everybody who comes to see Jesus ever gets named. John also wants us to know that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. John wants us to know that Nicodemus is a Jew and a leader among the Jews. And John wants us to know that Nicodemus is coming to see Jesus at night. And here's what John does. John gives us all of this detail about Nicodemus, but he doesn't tell us why. Like, why is this important? Like, this can't be incidental. Like Rob mentioned to you um, a couple of my books, but I also am a speaking coach. And so whenever I sit down with pastors or teachers or communicators, regardless of kind of the realm that they um, communicate in, and we talk about something that they've sent me to watch or to go over with them, my first question as we evaluate those sessions, my first question every time is, what were you trying to do? Because if I don't know what you are trying to do, there is no way for us to evaluate whether or not you are effective doing it. So I say, what were you trying to do? And so when I read John 3, my question is like, John, what are you trying to do? Why all of this detail? Why do we need to know this? Nicodemus is a Jewish leader who comes to Jesus at night under the cover of darkness. And then Nicodemus says this. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Now that's weird. Like why, why would you say this? So imagine like walking up to Merrill street on the street somewhere and saying, we know that you're an actress and you're pretty good. We've seen your movies. You've got a gift from God. Well, that's nice. It's encouraging, but it has, the message actually has no content. It doesn't move the conversation forward in any way. You could have sent a note with that. Like Nicodemus, like you got up in the middle of the night to come over here to say that. 
And then Jesus responds. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Nicodemus didn't ask a question. It's the most random statement, just out of the blue. So have you ever, um, have you ever watched a political debate and you get a sense that the moderator has spent some time like carefully crafting a question to get at a particular angle or an issue and then the candidate answers the question by not saying anything that has anything to do with that question. Like that's Jesus. No one's mentioned the kingdom of God. No one has said anything about being born. I think Nicodemus probably looks at Jesus after this response, like, I just gave you this really encouraging word about your teaching and you being from God, and then now you're talking about the kingdom of God, and Nicodemus is kind of like, okay. But he plays along. Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And here the shoe drops. Because now we see what all of this is all about. There has been one word used three times in four verses. And that word is Jesus wants to introduce us to a new topic that he wants to talk about, and he doesn't particularly care if we want to talk about it or not. Because Nicodemus knows how he was born. He was born a Jew. He was born the kind of Jew that was educated and elevated. He's a Pharisee. He's become a leader. He has a position in the world because of the way that he was born. And the reason we know that he knows how he was born is because he comes to Jesus at night. He comes to Jesus at night when no other Pharisees or anyone else can see him come to Jesus. They don't want to see a leader going to Jesus and he doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't come to Jesus in the day because he knows how he was born. I mean, you ever know anyone who said that the way that they were born didn't come with certain advantages and benefits, but everything they do reveals that they know that the way they were born came with certain advantages and benefits. Nicodemus knows how he was born. Jesus knows that Nicodemus knows how Nicodemus was born. That's why Jesus brings up the fact that Nicodemus knows how Nicodemus was born. And the last thing that people who are born with all of the advantages and the benefits, the last thing they want to talk about is being born with all of the advantages and benefits. And it comes in different ways. Um, I really do have a remarkable life that I am eternally grateful for. And much of that 
is because my great-grandfather, who was a millwork, bought a little piece of land in a town called Pelahatchie, Mississippi, which is outside of Jackson, Mississippi, about 20 miles. And no one really knows how, at, at the turn of the 19th century, a black man in Mississippi was able to buy this piece of land, but he was able to do it. And he bought another piece of land and another piece of land. Some were connected and some weren't until they were all connected. And that's our family land. And the reason that my father was able to go to college when his father never finished the third grade was because of that land. And the reason that my uncle was one of the first in to AOL and retired when he was like 41 and doesn't do anything but watch baseball and count his money <laughs> is because of that land. The reason my cousin who lives in Jackson started a construction business and retired and he just sits around and flies his planes and counts his money is because of that land. The reason I went to college and my girls live in a house that's got more rooms than people and go to private school is because of that land. The reason I'm able to write books is because of that land. It's the way I was born. I had certain things that not everybody had. We all come in this world born. And Jesus doesn't want us to forget that we all don't arrive here on equal footing like Nicodemus. Jesus says no one can see the kingdom without being born from above. And he, he could have said that a lot of different ways. He chooses the way we're born, like as a metaphor. Then Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. Oh, whoa, if you're Nicodemus, this is not really great news. Because Nicodemus is a Jew, and that for Jews, like, that's all you need for the kingdom. You remember that promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12? Like, receiving the kingdom, like, that's a birthright. That's the secret handshake. Like, you're a member of Skull and Bones, whatever it is. Everything comes down to being flesh. And now Jesus is saying, what is born of the flesh is just flesh. And this is what he means. All of the pecking order stuff, all of the this is mine, who's up, who's down, all that that we care about 
Jesus doesn't care about. Jesus cares about the spirit because of the way you were born, you've come to expect the world to treat you a certain way. And in the kingdom of God, that ain't the way. And you're white, you're black, you've come to expect life to be a certain way because of the way that you were born. Don't be astonished. And you're male and female, native, foreigner, immigrant, rich, poor, gay or straight, don't be astonished. And then Jesus drops this 1.2 megaton bomb that you've heard so many times that you have forgotten how world shattering it is, how powerful it is. Like you've seen it so often in end zones and people standing on street corners holding it up that you've glazed over how powerful it is. And in this conversation about flesh being a flesh and being born in a different way, this is what Jesus says to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Hotos kar agapasin ho theos ton cosmos. For God so loved the world. All of it. That everything and everybody is soaked in the love of God. Desmond Tutu talks about the love of God being like a fire in winter. And he says, you just stand there in front of it. You don't have to be smart or anything. The fire warms you. Here's our problem. We really don't like the idea of God loving the cosmos. We would really prefer it if God would just love the people that we love and condemn the people that we condemn because we know that if God loves the world, then we too would have to love the world. And that means if I'm racist or sexist or misogynist or a nationalist, if I want a world where some people are here and some people are here because of the way that they were born, this is not the world for me. This is not the world that God is inhabiting. This is not God's world because we really want to tell the world to get right and to get it right, which most of the time means having people think like me and dress like me and vote like me. If they would just get it together. Then the world would be a better place. So Jesus has one more thing to say to Nicodemus. And he says, indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. But guess what, Nicodemus? For God so loved the world. Here's what I want you to know. God is interested in saving, not condemning. 
even saving some of the people that you really wish God would condemn. And what might it look like if you were to be just as interested and invested in saving the world too? Saving those who suffer from racial injustice and saving the perpetrators of racial injustice. Saving the poor and saving the rich. Saving the native and saving the immigrant. Just all of it. Wherever life touches you, in your schools, your workplaces, your home, God is calling you to take what you have discovered and remember the death of God loving the world. God says, join me in loving everyone that I bring you into contact with, regardless of how they were born. Church, let me pray. God, would you fill us with your spirit and the spirit's power to move beyond the world as we see it and have received it, to see the world where you are working, the new heavens and new earth that you are creating. And we would ask, God, that you would renew and refresh in us a deep desire to be your people and belong to you and you alone. When all the other identities and desires become conflicted with what you are doing in the world, may we lay them aside to be women and men who reflect who you are in the world, that we join you in loving that world. We ask in your name, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you guys for your time and attention. Um, grace and peace be with you. Not also with you.